0: Changed the world. Uh, man, I'm so excited. I, I never had noticed this before. I'm, I'm a huge uh, just student of scripture and I love the Bible and I love reading it, but I would never put together the timeline of things when I read the Gospels, which, by the way, if I ever don't know what to read in the Bible and I don't have a thing, I just go straight to those red words. And, and I love reading the life of Jesus and the words of Jesus. But it, it, it dawned on me as I began to prepare for this sermon that if you look at the entire kind of written take on Jesus's life that the vast majority of it is not his entire life. Obviously, there's very little, you know, we got, we got shepherds and, 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 and wise people for his birth. And then there's this little snippet when he's 12, when he goes to the temple. And then after that, it doesn't pick up until he's about 30 years old. But even from 30 to the age of roughly 33, when he dies on the cross, the, the Gospels don't chronologically walk through every single thing he ever did. John even said if we did that, I mean, we'd run out of paper. But most of it, everybody say most Did you know that most of the gospel is written about his final week here on earth? That if you look at the book of John, like half the book of John is his last week only. If you look at Matthew, Mark and Luke... About a third of those are just the last week of Jesus. This thing is huge, and there, there's so many rich, fascinating things that go on in the series. And so if, if you haven't been here, go watch online or, or go get the CDs. But on week one, we, we obviously started with the very first day, kind of what they call the triumphant entry, which is actually today. Today is Palm Sunday, right? So we covered that two weeks ago because we were to talk about it for a few weeks. And so on Palm Sunday, he enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And it's just fascinating. All the history that's in play there that is maybe not so, so obvious in the scriptures. You really need to get that message. And then last week, we kind of took a look at what I think is probably Jesus's biggest Teaching moment his now he teaches a, a bunch of cool stuff his final week, but his biggest teaching moment is he spends like an entire day talking about the Holy Spirit and the person of the Holy Spirit and so I think I think you, many of us have some really funky experiences when it comes to the Holy Spirit or or we either have no experience when it comes to the Holy Spirit and and, and most of us don 't have these fantastic positive ones, but what, what I really wanted to show you last week is when you just look at the words of Jesus, Jesus makes the Holy Spirit just seem like. Duh, why wouldn't I want this in my life? This, this makes so much sense. Now, if you want the Holy Spirit because of what culture says or what, what other church experience might say, you might be weirded out and want nothing to do with it. Go look at what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit and you're going to be saying, that's me, I need that, I want that, I need the Holy Spirit in my life. And so that was part two. Today we will look at what I believe is Jesus' really final big event before his crucifixion. It is what we call the Last Supper. Let's pray as we begin today. Father, I pray, God, that you would uh, just speak to us today. God, let the scripture speak. God, I pray that you would just teach us something, show us something. Above all, God, get into our heart and our mind to begin to work some things out, God. We just have your way in this place, Lord. That is our prayer. In Jesus' name. We all said? Amen. So everybody say, the Last Supper. Now, I don't know about you, but when, when I think about the Last Supper, I, I think about this picture right here. There's a, There's a picture that's very, very famous. Yep. How many know this picture? Who did this? This is for twenty five dollars. Who? Nobody sure. Da Vinci, right? Yeah, Da Vinci wrote this, or he wrote this. He he drew this. This is just crayon. And, um, I love this picture. I always thought it was really really cool. Although I thought they made Jesus look really weird. And this is supposedly John, and he looks kind of like a girl. Um, This is the picture many of us see in our brain a little bit when we think about Passover and Passover is an absolutely real historical thing. Can I help you? It looked nothing like that, though. This is way off. You know why? Let me start with a few things. Um, He was a great painter. He was not a historian. The, The reason why we know this is because they would have never sat at table and chairs. As a matter of fact, when we read the scriptures today, we'll see these words where it says that Jesus was reclining. Like, it, it makes it almost feel like he's got a lazy boy. What they did, though, is they, they actually ate on this lower... You know, well, think about Middle Eastern. Think about, you know, some place where they're... You're, you ever been to a restaurant where you get into the pillows and you lay down and you all dip in the same food? That freaks me out. I have germ issues and stuff. Because my buddy's from Africa and he took me to an African restaurant where y'all... That's gross. And so... So they would have been dipping in the same bowl. This is as a matter of fact, you remember when he talked about Judas and he called out Judas and he goes, the one that betrays me is the one that dips his hand in the same cup as mine or the bowl as it because they were all dipping in the same bowl. OK. Um, so no table and chairs. No. Secondly, it's like it's like a pretty day outside, like blue skies, maybe a little cloud in the back. It was dark. Real Passover always happened. At nighttime, it was the Passover Seder and it happened in the evening. Even what's on their plate, if you look closely, there's like bread. See this loaf of bread? They would have never eaten that. Because the Jews ate what's called matzah bread. They had unleavened bread. And it was symbolic of the entire Passover Seder because they basically had to get out of Egypt so fast they didn't have time to make the bread rise. And so they just got, and I'll, I'll talk about that. This is good. And then there's like, there's like a chicken bone. Or something. I don't know. See, they had matzah and lamb. So they got the menu wrong, the day of the time uh, the, the this is wrong. And let me just tell you like you notice like all the dudes look like white European men. That's not right either, you know? Jesus was a Jewish guy living in the Middle East, and so were all of his disciples. So they would not have looked, you know, pasty white like that. They just Okay, so anyway, my, my point is is that the Passover Is a real historical event, and and this is not at all what the Passover would look like. So let's talk about what it would look like. Here's what you need about Passover is Passover has been held for thousands of years now. Even when Jesus was holding Passover, it it had already been held for like 1400 years because it was a historical event based on the, the Jews and the Israelites, their exodus from Egypt. When they were in Egypt, they, be, they become slaves underneath Pharaoh. And in, in their bondage and affliction and slavery, they cried out to God for God to deliver them. And so God shows up with... With plagues and craziness because Pharaoh's being stubborn and won't let the people go. And so God basically strong arms Pharaoh until he breaks. And then when the people leave, there's this final plague. It's called the plague of the death angel. It's where basically death was going to come upon Egypt. And the only way to be saved from death was to take the blood of an innocent lamb and put it over the doorpost of your home. And that would be representative of, of your covering underneath God's protection. And death would pass over your home. Everybody say Passover. Yeah, you see where we get that now. But so the death angel would pass over your home. And so they ended up with this event called Passover. And so the Old Testament, like Moses goes on to say, hey, this is a thing. Like, this, this, y'all better get used to this. This is the thing we're going to do all the time. And so the Jewish people had holy times. Everybody say holy times. So we have holy things. They have holy times. And so when we think about holy times, we might think about Easter and Christmas. But for them, they had three major feast seasons. They had one in the spring, one a little bit in late spring, and then one in the fall. And in the, in the early spring, they would have these feasts. It was basically three of them smooshed together. It was Passover, unleavened bread and first fruits. And these are all really, really fascinating. If you ever study them, I encourage you to go do so. You'll see uh, nothing's there. Um. You'll see a lot of just fascinating, rich insight. And so Jesus, being a good Jew, you know, what he did. He celebrated Passover every single year. And it didn't look like that picture. It looked a little bit more like what we're going to read today. And so Luke chapter 22, if you have your Bible, if you don't just read along on the screens, the Bible says, then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. The reason why you would have to make preparations is because of the level of detail. There's like an order to the Passover Seder that you were supposed to follow. And it wasn't like you could just run out to Troy or Joe's and go grab, you know, whatever. You had to really kind of think through and plan this event. And so drop down to verse 14. So when the hour came... Jesus, Jesus and his po- apostles recline. There's that word reclined at the table. How many know like you would love it? Like, OK, when you were a kid, you would love it if you could eat on the floor, right? Your kids are still like that. You shouldn't let your kids know about the scripture because they're going to want to go home. be like Jesus did it and they're going to eat on the floor. But that's what they would do back then. They would recline and lay on pillows and eat. And just so you know, too, this was like a four hour event. Easy like this was a long dinner party. So he said to them. I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again, Passover, until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. So after taking the cup, everybody say the cup, Cup. the cup, that's important. We're going to be on the cup today. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread And gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup. I say the cup. The cups come back again, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So here's what's going on. And like I said, if you don't know the, the, the Passover Seder and the order of things, this sounds kind of confusing. Like the whole order is significant here. Like they had a flow of events. So in a, in a, in a home and in a family, what you would do is, is you might have like the patriarchal husband or head of the home or whatever it is, stand up. And he would basically speak a blessing and kind of open the door and say, hey, it's Passover time. And he would start with a blessing. And then there were four cups. Everybody say four cups. There were four cups of wine that you would drink throughout the night. Um, funny enough, the last one's called the Cup of Praise. Um, the, 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 it's called like the Hallelujah Cup. And don't you think like, OK, it's been four cups of wine. We're all going to be, woo, you know that. Yeah. So four cups of wine throughout this evening. And each one had like an order of events and an order of things that would go on. So like you would start with an opening cup and a blessing. And then later there was there was this matzah bread. The bread of affliction. See, this is what Jesus said. Jesus said, take this. This is my body, which is bruised for you, which is broken for you. And so literally the matzah bread, if you look at it, it's a it's literally a flat bread with holes in it. It's an afflicted bread. It's a, it, it's what Jesus became for you and I. And so anyway, so so there's these there's another part where they dip this bread into what they call um The cup of bitterness or not the cup of bitterness, but it was like bitter herbs. They had this little bowl of like, and I don't remember what's all in it, but it's bitter. It's not good. And they would do this on purpose. And the reason why they took the bitter herbs was to remind them of the bitterness of their slavery, to remind them of what their ancestors had gone through and to remind them the bitterness of sin. And so. Even, even after that, after the second cup, they had this really cool portion where, um, where the kids, now, can you imagine being like a little kid and seeing this for the first time? You're like, daddy, what are we doing? And so they had this special moment carved out in Passover where the kid would say, daddy, why is this different than every other night? And then, and then the dad would get up and say, well, son, I'm glad you asked. And, um, and he would tell. The Exodus story. And it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. And I'm telling you what, one of the most amazing moments I ever had in my own life as a dad was the moment that my son asked me about taking communion. Because it was this same event. It was so symbolic. And, and what it was, it was for them a moment where they could tell their kids, let me tell you what God has done in us. Let me tell you why we're here today. Let me tell you why this is important. Let me tell you what God's done in me. And it was just this amazing moment where you could transfer your story towards your children. it was just beautiful. So, so then they would move on to the different cups. The third cup was called the cup of redemption. And then, and then Jesus begins to change things up after that. But let's, let's talk about the four cups. gonna say four cups. The reason why they had four cups is because in the book of Exodus, there's a scripture where there were four. I will statements from God saying what God had done for them. And so they had come up with these four cups based out of this in the book of Exodus. Let's read Exodus chapter six, verse six says this. It says, say therefore to the people of Israel, I'm the Lord and I will, "I will. I will bring you out from underneath the burdens of the Egyptians. Here's the second one. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will, this is the third one, redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Lastly, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. This is kind of the combo one. And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. Who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So what they did was for the Passover, they took this scripture and they said, here are the four kind of blessings and promises and things that God is saying about our exodus. And the first one was this. It was what they called the cup of sanctification. This was the cup that said, God, I used to be in Egypt. I ain't in Egypt no more. I used to be away from God. I didn't know I was bound. I was in slave. I was, but not anymore. God has now pulled me out and separated me. The second one was called the cup of deliverance. Now, it sounds a little bit the same, but you've got to remember, like, it's one thing to be in Egypt. It's another thing entirely to be a slave. Because there's some of us in here today who would fit the same category. Let me explain to you. These people came out of Egypt, but they still thought like slaves. Still acted like slaves, still had slave mentalities. And as a matter of fact, it was so bad with all of their slave mentality, mumbo jumbo and complaining and blaming and excusing and shirking responsibility. That's what victims do. That's what slaves do. It's always somebody else's fault. It's never our responsibility. And so it was so bad that God literally had to say, look, y'all, y'all can't go in the promised land because y'all are tripping so here's what we're going to do. We're just going to walk around the desert until y'all pass away. And I'm going to let your kids get in there because your kids know how to be free people. But y'all don't know how to be free. So there's a difference between being in Egypt and being free from slavery. And some of us fall in that category sometimes. Sometimes we like, we believe in God. If we die, will we go to heaven. Yeah, but you still live underneath the slave of sin. Like, I'm still a slave to my old life. I'm still a slave to those old attitudes that, yeah, I believe in Jesus. But I don't know that it's translated into making me free on the inside. Let me say that's good. That's good. Number number three is this. That was the second cup. The third cup was called the cup of redemption. This is the idea that God has literally purchased you. He has paid the price to bring you out, but he's to to redeem something means to bring it back to its original intent. We'll talk about that in a minute, too. And then lastly, like I said, after you drink four cups, what do you got in you? You got a little woohoo in you. The hallelujah cup, the halal cup. That's what they called it. And so it was literally. And, and, and as a matter of fact, after they got through drinking this cup, they would sing songs. They would go back into Psalms 115 and 116. right in there? And they would sing songs. As a matter of fact, if you go read Matthew's version of the Last Supper, the Bible says that after this, they sang hymns and then they went to take a walk in the Mount of Olives, which is where he was arrested just a little bit later. Why were they like singing hymns? That was a part of the Passover Seder. So this is the this is the thing that's going on here. But I want you to see the symbolism, because when you look at these four cups, I'm going to make w- one real quick observation that we're going to walk through the four cups. Th- this is what you need to know about the Exodus and the way that they thought about it. Many times we make a big, huge fail by looking at things in the Bible and saying, oh, isn't that nice? Oh, look what God did for them. Oh, isn't that a nice story? Oh, look, David killed Goliath. And that's cute. Let's tell our kids about that. And that'll encourage them to be champions and take on giants or whatever it is. And we many times look at, at these things as being historical events where God did something for them. They did not look at it like that. What they realized was, is that the exodus was for everybody. That God's deliverance was for everybody. That the deliverance story was not just about them back there doing God doing something for them. But they realized that God had a personal exodus for them. Does that make sense? Like, what has God freed you from? Like, here's the question you need to ask yourself. What's your Egypt? One of the best questions you can ever ask yourself is to ask yourself the question, where would I be had God not saved me? Had God not rescued me? Had God not opened up my heart and my eyes? Where would I be in life? This is why you taste of the bitter herbs to remind you not to go back to Egypt. But, but listen, what is your Egypt? Take a moment and think about that. Think about what God's brought you out of. Think about where you used to be. Think about what could have been had God not. And remember that God has an Exodus story for you. Not just for them, but here, here, here's a question. What Egypt are you living in right now that you need God to free you from? See, God wants to do something in you now. And their story is just to kickstart your story. So they walk through these four cups throughout the course of the evening. And so much of it is symbolic. I want to talk about the four cups. Because what I realize is when I look at the four cups, you know what they represent? They represent my life story. And they represent what God's trying to bring every one of us out of. Are you ready to see it? Now, we're going to walk through this and talk about this and find out how Jesus is the redemption of it all. At the end of the day, we're going to receive Holy Communion together today. But here are the four cups that I want you to see. Number one is this. When you think about what God's doing in you, you need to know that God wants to bring you out. Like, like this is your story, isn't it? Like, no matter where you're at in life, some of you have problems right now in your marriage. Some of you might have an addiction. Some of you are bound to sin. Some of you are just away from God and God wants to bring you out of that. There is an Egypt in your life and God starts right there in that moment. I I go back to my moment. Somebody was asking me about it just, I think, earlier this week. I was in my office and was starting to, like, share my story and share my testimony and talk about what God did in me and and when it happened and how it happened. But the bottom line is this. I was a kid that grew up in church my whole life, but it become an absolute delinquent and a hoodlum. Can I say hoodlum? I was an awful. I was an awful human being. Went to church every Sunday because mom and dad made me. Had no faith in God and lived absolutely hoodlum-esque. And all the delinquency and all the trouble I caused and all the mess that I got into and, and all the stuff that was hidden in my life. And I came to a point in my life where finally something happened. It's really the, the bottom of the barrel moment. If you're a Jesus follower, you've probably had that moment. There's a good chance you had your bottom of the barrel moment. Like, I've hit rock bottom. You may have even had the moment that scared you. Has anybody had the moment that scared you? Like, uh, oh God, this is... ooh. If you don't do something, Lord, it's it's going downhill quick. I had my oh no moment, my scared moment, where God somehow got my hold of my attention, and that's when I realized I was living in an Egypt. I didn't call it that at the time. What I realized was I was living in a life that was going nowhere. I was living in a life that was worthless and useless. And if this was all that there was, I don't know how much worth it was living because life had become meaningless because of sin and and, and the penalty and the punishment that sin was putting on my life. And I just kind of opened in that moment. I turned to God and I prayed like, God, if you're real, I need you in my life. And that was my God. Get me out of Egypt. Like, I need you to help me. And this is where God wants to do in you. And for many of us, this is what God's already done is. But let us never forget to think about it, to remember, to go back and reflect on that. One of the reasons why Christians never need to like just totally walk away is because sometimes you've been a Christian for so long, you forgot what it was like to be away from God. And now you can't relate to other people like you used to. As a matter of fact, you want to hear something funny? And this is just me as a pastor. You know who the people that are the best at inviting people to church? New believers. Why? Wow, they still Remember? They know what it was like. They're they're excited about what God's given them, but they still remember what it was like to kind of be lost. And they they want to help bridge the two for somebody else. The other thing is this, is that they haven't so disconnected their life from everybody who's away from God. Sometimes you become a Christian. Number one, you forget what it was like not to walk with Jesus. And then secondly, you've so isolated yourself from the world. You don't even have friends anymore that are away from God. You've got friends and all of them are Jesus followers. You've got friends, but they all go to your church or they all go to some Bible study. And that's that's all, you know, and encourage you don't ever so far remove this moment from your life that you decide you don't remember what it was like or you just don't have any people that are still there. That's how you get people out of Egypt. Sometimes you got to go down to Egypt and help pull them out. Can I get an amen? Do that this Easter. Invite somebody, bring somebody, let somebody know that, hey, look, there is life and freedom in Jesus. And you don't have to say it like that because that's not going to make any sense. If you think that, if your life is better with Jesus, don't you believe it for them as well? Don't you think if God could do a miracle in you, that God could do it for them as well? Absolutely we do. God wants to set you free. Number two is this is, I'm sorry, God will bring you out. Number two is God will set me free. Like I said, some of us, we're, we're believers In our mind, (laughs) we're believers in the sense that we make an intellectual acknowledgement that, yeah, I think Jesus is real and God's real. And that's probably kind of important. Do you know that something like 80 percent of people polled in America believe in the resurrection? But a incredibly drastically lower number of people actually live that out. What's the difference? It's taking the gap from belief to experience. It's actually going a little bit further to say, I don't want to just get out of Egypt. I want to get Egypt out of me. You ever? That, that's the old term that, you know, you, you can get you can get the guy out the ghetto, but you can't get the ghetto out the guy. You get the trailer park girl. Out the you, you got you still got you. And God wants to bring you out of Egypt, but he also wants to get Egypt out of you. Like like it's one, like some of us, you're going to go to heaven one day, but bless God, you're going to crawl in like you're barely breathing, you're going in depressed, you're going in beaten up, you're going in a slave to sin still. You're not you're not in Egypt anymore, but I mean bless God you got one foot still in the door. The God wants you to be free, not just out of Egypt geographically. He wants you out of Egypt in your heart. The only way you do that is by surrendering your your life to God in every aspect of your life. Again, how you how you love your spouse, how you raise your kids, how you think about your finances. You've got to renew your mind to say, God, I want to think like you think so I can live as you would have me to live. And that takes time, doesn't it? I don't know about you, but like when I became a Christian, there was some quick, instant, like, get out of Egypt fast stuff. But there was some other stuff that I struggled with for years that it took me a long time to work out. Can I tell you that's okay, you just keep working it out. Just keep walking with Jesus. Just keep renewing your mind so that you can think as God thinks, so one day you'll live as He would have you to live. You've got to get not just free geographically, but you've got to get free in your heart and in your mind. Number three is this is that God has redeemed you for a purpose. This is really what gives life meaning. Think about it. I mean, absent of God, what are you doing this all for? Just trying to make a dollar? Just trying to get by, just trying to find a little bit of happiness, just trying to find a little love. Just what what you're doing is just trying because you don't know life away from God is absent of real meaning because everything that you do all of a sudden pales in light of eternity. Everything you do won't last beyond your lifespan. You're going to have a tombstone one day. You're going to have a digit here, a digit here, a dash in the middle. And everything that was going on will have ended right then and there. Because nothing that you have done would have had eternal value apart from God. What are you doing with your life? God's, God's redeemed you, meaning he, he's bought you to bring you back to your original purpose. God has a purpose for your life. This is where I say I, I want to be out of Egypt and I want to be free in my heart and mind. But now I want to be actually right in the midst of God's perfect plan whatever it is that he's called me to do, chosen me to do, gifted me to do, that God has got something inside of you that the rest of the world needs. Did you know that? Like there's something in you that the rest of the world is longing for. We're going to step into God's perfect plan and purpose for your life. He's redeemed you for a purpose. And then lastly, this is when we get to the fourth cup, and I I didn't know how to word it the best, but I just came up with this, is, is that not only will he get me sanctified and free me and redeem me, but God will love me forever. has uh, a woohoo moment right there. God will love me forever. Now, now here's what happened in the real, uh, in the real moment when Jesus has Passover after the third cup, what we call the cup of redemption, he didn't drink anymore. He never even got to this one. Now this was for me and you, but this is why Jesus stopped. Jesus stopped right then and there to, to kind of make a point. So guys, this is different now after the third cup, Jesus basically says, well, this is the cup. Remember when now when we read it, we don't we don't see the whole Passover, Seder order because they don't they don't break it down like that. But if you get to the third cup, what you'll see is that Jesus basically says, wait a minute, something's going to change right now. This has been the cup of redemption for all of Jewish history, but I'm going to tweak things out just a little bit because I want to show you that I am your redemption. This is where he stops and he says, I am this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which was shed for you. And then he says, I'm not going to drink anymore because I'm going to wait and one day we're going to pop the bottle in heaven. I don't know if he would say it like that. <laughs> we're going to smoosh the grapes and make wine in heaven. Listen to this. Are you ready? Did I put it in my notes? I didn't put it in my notes. Doggone it. But the Bible says in the book of Revelation, the Bible says that At the culmination of all things, that we will be in heaven together. That's what's called the marriage supper of the lamb. What were they eating at Passover? Lamb. What did they sacrifice every Passover? Lamb. What did they kill back in the book of Exodus? Lamb. They took the blood and actually what they did was they would put it on the doorpost. They would put it on both of the sides and then blood would fall down and be at the bottom as well which is the perfect picture of a cross he had thorns pressed into his brow he had spikes driven through his hands and through his feet and blood pouring out below listen to this in the book first corinthians chapter 5 verse 7 for christ our passover lamb has been sacrificed he's saying this whole thing that we've been doing for 1,400 years was a symbolism. I was just trying to get you to think about something because one day I was going to fulfill it myself. And guess what? Now we don't have to depend on the blood of animals to save us for one year. But I will be your sacrifice forever. It's Jesus. He is your Passover lamb. And you and I get to celebrate with the fourth cup and say hallelujah. Thank you, God. And this is why they would, after this, go into the book of Psalms and they would start going through the Psalms and, and they would basically sing praises and sing hymns to God. And it would be like, yes, look what the Lord has done. These are the four cups of the Passover. So today, what I want you to do is if, if, if you are not a member of this church, that doesn't matter. We don't even do really like official membership role anyway. Somebody asked me, like, what do I have to do to take communion? If you put your heart and faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then receive communion with us today. If you're unsure, then today's the day that maybe you take that step for the very first time. You say, you know, what, I I want God in my life. Today we're going to take and receive communion. So ushers, if you could go ahead and begin to pass out the elements. What we're going to do is very similar to what they did. We're going to receive holy communion and we're going to sing one last song to kind of close out service. But while they do that. If you're in here today and you say, Todd, I know that I need God in my life and I want to be forgiven and I need the Lord in my life, then everybody do me a favor, bow your heads and close your eyes right now. Ushers, if you could just hang on one second, I just want to give some people an opportunity. If you say, Todd, that's me. I need God. I know that I do. I need Jesus in my life. I, I know that I'm, I'm lost and I want to be found. I, I, I'm a sinner and I want to be forgiven. And I don't know where I'm going, but I want to have meaning and purpose in life. And I believe it's only God that can give that to me. Then right now, I want you to go ahead and just between you and God, if that's you today, I want you to slip your hands up in the air and say, that's me today. I know I need God in my life. I need Jesus to forgive me. Yes, yeah, slip your hand up in the air and leave it there. Usher's, hold on one second. Usher's, wait. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's do this. Let's pray a prayer this morning. Everybody in the church, let's pray it out loud. Let's join those who are praying this maybe for the very first time. Everybody, I want you to pray this prayer after me. There's nothing magical about it. It's just our way of saying yes to God. Everybody say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart and change me and save me. Forgive me, Lord. I'm lost and I need to be found. I'm a sinner and I need a savior. I believe that you died for me. And you rose again. Help me, Lord, to know you and to follow you as you show me how. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Can we give the Lord a big hand clap this morning?